Amen. You may be seated. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Jesus is a selfish, self-centered, lying maniac. But if Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, then everything Jesus says is true. All the claims he makes about himself are true. This would mean that forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a relationship with God, and everything else the scriptures teach is true. It's available to us in Christ. If Jesus rose from the dead, then heaven is real and eternal. If Jesus rose from the dead, hell is real and eternal. If Jesus rose from the dead, then the word of God really is the word of God. I cannot think of a more significant and exciting doctrine to consider here this morning than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is so central to every aspect of our walk with the Lord. But the question we're going to look at this morning is how do we know the resurrection really happened? How do we know that the resurrection, the teaching in the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus is not a fairy tale? It's not just a pie-in-the-sky uh, pie optimism, wishful thinking. How do we know it happened in time and space? Well, this morning, I want to give you two reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Luke chapter 24. There are probably 50 reasons to believe in the resurrection, but there are only two in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to look at those this morning. The first is the witnesses, and the second is the word, the, the witnesses and the word. So let's start with the witnesses in verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. John chapter 20 tells us that the disciples, the, the, the inner circle of Jesus' followers, they are hiding, locked in a room because they are afraid of the Jews. Seedlings of hope are sprouting up in their heart, but they're growing in the shadow of fear. They are terrified that the Jews would catch them and persecute them, or maybe even kill them. But at the same time, they've heard all of these rumblings of hope, rumblings of Christ appearing to all kinds of people. And so as hope is swelling in their hearts, they are still afraid. And this is where the Lord Jesus Christ decides to appear to them. Remember, the disciples had not had a good week. Earlier in the week, they all professed their love and loyalty to Jesus, but, betray, but Judas betrayed Jesus to death. Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times. They all abandoned Jesus to die alone. And they all rejected the testimony of the women that Jesus was alive. And now he's going to appear to them. Now, what is he going to say? Like, what would you say if you're, gonna, if you're Jesus and you're going to come into this room where all of your closest followers are, but these are the people who have failed you mightily? What would you say? Would you say, you know, how are you doing, you backstabbing cowards? Why, I mean, where, why weren't you there? Why weren't you there for me when I needed you? Is that what you would say? I don't know. But this is what the Lord Jesus says in verse 36. He said to them, peace to you. Peace to you. That is good news for our souls, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to bring peace on earth. He is the prince of peace. He is the peace of God. And through the cross, his life, death, and resurrection, through the, the, the shedding of his blood, he has made peace between God and man. For everyone who is in Christ, you are at peace with God. So he offers us peace with God. He, off, he also offers us peace with one another, that we can have peace, wholeness of relationships with one another. And then we can have peace within ourselves because the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a God of peace. And please notice that there's not a hint of bitterness or anger towards them. He's not sarcastic towards them. He's not cutting them. Rather, he says, peace to you. Peace to you. Verse 37, but they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. 
They're, like, they're trying to make sense out of what's going on, and they're, they're terrified because Jesus just appears right in front of them. They knew the door was locked, and he just steps right through. Steps right through, and they, they're looking at him, and it says they're startled. They're terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Verse 38, why are you troubled? So they're troubled, and he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So even though Jesus is standing right in front of them, they're still doubting. Doubts are rising up in their souls. Now, please notice that the disciples were not quick to believe in the resurrection. When you read the gospel accounts, you see that they were reluctant to believe in the resurrection. They did not believe the testimony of the women. Even when they saw the empty tomb, they were, they were not quick to believe in the resurrection. They were highly skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because people, they don't just come back from the dead. When someone's dead, they're dead. If they're really dead, they remain dead. And so the claim of the, of the resurrection was so outrageous. I mean, you're telling me that Jesus, the one who died on the cross, we know he's dead. He's been in the tomb for three days. He's alive. They were skeptical. And this is where we run into some common objections to the resurrection. Objection number one is that the disciples came to believe in the resurrection because they wanted so badly to believe in the resurrection. Why did the disciples come to believe in the resurrection? Because they really wanted to believe in the resurrection. They willed their way, they willed themselves to believe in the resurrection in spite of the evidence. This is one claim that you will hear all over the place, but this objection has no basis in history, no basis in logic, and no basis in the Bible. In the Gentile world, the Greek and Roman world, they believed that the body was a curse and that death would free you from the curse of your body. So in the Gentile world at this time, there was no anticipation of a bodily resurrection. What about the Jewish world? Well, many Jewish people bought into the theological system of the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed that this life is all that there is. There is no future res resurrection. But there were some Jews who believed in the resurrection at the end of all things. They said, okay, at the very end of time, there was some sort of resurrection. But no Jewish people had a category for a dying and rising Messiah. It was not on their radar. This is not what they were looking to at all. And so the objection that the disciples came to believe in the resurrection because they wanted so badly to believe in the resurrection is untenable. It's incoherent. Objection number two is that the, dis the disciples came to believe in the resurrection because they were dumb. They were, they were dumb. They are ancient people. They're trying their best, but they're primitive. They're uneducated. They're dumb. And that's why they believed in the resurrection. See, we're modern people. We're sophisticated. We are educated. We're thoughtful. We follow the science. We follow the data. And that's why we don't believe in the resurrection. This, is, this argument is all over the place. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. It is the belief that our generation is smarter than the previous generation who was smarter than the previous generation who was smarter than the previous generation. The problem with this argument is that I've read Josephus before. I've read Augustine before and, and other ancient writers. And the reason their writings remain today and they're significant today is because people in their generation read their work and benefited from it. And then it got passed down from one generation to the next all the way to, up to today. And so my conclusion is that if Socrates and Plato and Josephus and Augustine and their cultures were all dumb, then there isn't even a word in the English language to describe how dumb we are. I mean, we are not smart. If they're dumb, if their cultures were dumb, then what are we? What are we? Someone posted this the other day. I thought it was pretty good. Do you want to put that up there? If you think you're smarter than the previous generation, 50 years ago, the owner's manual of a car showed you how to adjust the valves. Today, it warns you not to drink the contents of the battery. 
It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> Don't drink the battery acid, guys. Come on. See, they were not dumb. They were not gullible. I would not, if I were you, I would not allow yourself to say, to write off the disciples, just saying they're uneducated, dumb people, so they believed in the resurrection. They were just as skeptical of a claim about the resurrection as you are. I mean, if you heard the story that someone has been raised from the dead, what would you say? Obviously, he's alive. You wouldn't say that. You'd say, what are you talking about? They were just as skeptical as you are. So why did they come to believe in the resurrection? Verse 38, why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, it is, it is the Lord, the, it's not a ghost, it is the, the resurrected Jesus Christ who is standing in their midst and he says, look at me, touch me, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. That's amazing to me. He is dealing with their doubts. He is dispelling their doubts. He is addressing their hands. Touch me. Touch me. Ghosts don't, ghosts don't have bodies like I do. See me, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my wounds. They saw and they touched the resurrected Christ. And in a moment, he is going to address their minds. He's gonna open up the scriptures to them. But this event, and others like it, convinced the disciples that Jesus is really alive. He really rose from the dead. From this moment on, the lives of the disciples were never the same. They were permanently different. In what ways? Well, first... The disciples worshiped the resurrected Christ. They worshiped him. If there was one group of people on the planet you would never expect to worship a human being, it is the Jewish people. I mean, in the pagan world, people would worship human beings all the time. The Jewish world, that was the highest form of blasphemy, to worship a human being. But these Jewish people, the disciples of Jesus, came to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, if he is alive from the dead, then everything he says about himself is absolutely true. He is God in the flesh. The resurrection shattered their worldview. They said, he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He is God. Do you remember doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas who said, I won't believe, I will not believe in the resurrection unless I see him with my own eyes and I touch, touch his wounds. I gotta see his wounds, I gotta touch him. And then the Lord Jesus graciously appears to doubting Thomas. And when Thomas sees the Lord, he falls on his knees. What does he say? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are the God of the universe who became a man. My Lord and my God. And so the disciples worshiped the resurrected Christ. Next, the disciples preached the resurrected Christ. In the book of Acts, at Pentecost, you see that Peter stood up and he said, Jesus, the man you crucified, God raised him from the dead. The man you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the one who offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is the central message in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is alive. God raised him from the dead. And then, lastly, the disciples died for the resurrected Christ. 
They worshiped the resurrected Christ. They preached the resurrected Christ. And then they died for the resurrected Christ. And if you're here this morning and you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you must give an account of the disciples. How do you explain what happened to the disciples? How do you explain the birth of Christianity without a resurrected Jesus? The best explanation of the facts is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He was raised by the power of God from the grave. Many say, many object to this idea, and they say, well, people die all the time for things that are not true. So the disciples dying because they preached that Christ was raised from the dead, that's not significant or unique in history. People die all the time for things they believe to be true. Look at uh, radical Islamic terrorists who strap bombs on themselves and they blow themselves up because they believe they're going to go to paradise. But we know they're not going to paradise. They, they died for a lie. So how is that any different? Well, the difference is significant. The difference is huge. The radical Islamic terrorists that are blowing themselves up, they have no way of knowing whether or not paradise is waiting for them. They believe it, but they have no way to know if it's actually waiting for them. The disciples would have known whether or not Jesus appeared to them alive. They would have known whether or not it was true that Jesus is alive from the dead. They would have known if they were just making it up. I mean, try to explain what the disciples did without a resurrected Christ. You know, imagine the disciples, they, they gather after Jesus dies, and he's, he's laid in the tomb, they get together, and they're like, okay, guys, here's the plan. We have a four-step plan. Are you ready? Step one, fight the Roman soldiers who are guarding the tomb with the best military equipment, and they're guarding the tomb at the cost of their life. We're going to fight them. We're going to take them on. We're all going to survive. Step two, steal the body of Jesus. We're going to take the body of Jesus Christ and hide it someplace. Step three, preach that Jesus is alive when we know that he's dead. We already know he's dead because we stole his body. Step four, live in poverty, be hated by everyone, and die a brutal death. Okay, put your hands in on three. One, two, three, death. Let's go. One, two, three, let's die. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. See, the reason they proclaimed that Christ has been raised from the dead is because they saw the resurrected Christ. The reason they, they wouldn't deny the resurrection, even up to the point of death, is because they saw the resurrected Christ. And see, men who proclaim truths like that are often out of their minds. I mean, you look at people, they make outrageous claims all the time, and when you talk with them, they're out of their minds. But see, the disciples, they were the most right-minded people on the planet. They were totally coherent. They were, they were full of love and righteousness, kindness. They loved people well. They even loved their enemies. And so not only were they proclaiming a resurrected Christ, the communion they had with the resurrected Christ transformed their lives, making it so difficult to argue with them. So I believe the witnesses of the resurrected Christ provide compelling evidence for us to believe that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. The second reason is the word. It is the word of God. It is the scriptures. Jesus addresses their hands, touch me. He addresses their eyes, see my wounds. And then he's going to address their minds with the scriptures. He's going he's to do a Bible study with them. And he's going to anchor their understanding of his life, death, and resurrection in the Bible. He's saying, my life and my death and my resurrection is in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 44. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses 
This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying, Moses is writing about me. The prophets, you read the prophets, Daniel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the list goes on. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. This is the entirety of the Old Testament. Everything written about me in the Old Testament, he says, was going to be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. He says, I have fulfilled everything written in the Old Testament about me. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opens up their minds to understand the scriptures so that they could see how everything in the Old Testament is pointing to him. And you need to notice that only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can turn on the lights in a dark soul. This is a supernatural work of God. We cannot miss the fact that inward illumination is supernatural. It is done by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit of God. There, there have been so many times in my life where I preach a sermon. I don't know if you've had this experience. You preach a sermon, you share the gospel with someone, and you walk away from that time and you say to yourself, that was really good. I did a really good job there. Like, I kind of want to become a Christian again. Like, I'm leading myself to Christ again. I mean, this is it's so clear. Holy cow, I can't even do any better than that. But then you look at people's faces and they're just zombies. They don't care at all. It's like the truth of God's word is a ping pong ball and they're wearing a helmet. You just throw it right there. It just bounces right off. They don't care at all. You give it your best effort, as good as you can do, and nobody cares. But then there are times when it appears that you have done a bad job. Like you, you, you give it your best effort, but just things really, they didn't go well. Uh, there have been times when I've fumbled, I've stumbled, I just tripped all over myself. And God uses that. People come to faith in Christ and their lives are changed forever. How do you explain that? You explain it through this truth that only the Lord Jesus Christ can illuminate the darkness of the human soul. There's not a switch that you can flip in the human heart. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can shine darkness or shine light into the darkness of our souls. And you must hold on to this if you're going to minister to people. Because if you don't, if you think it's about you, it's about your excellence, it's about your strength and your cleverness and your insight, you will become exceedingly proud. You will say, it's up to me. Or you will become exceedingly discouraged because you say, it's up to me and I can't do it. We must put our hope in the grace of God. If anyone's going to be transformed, it will only be by the grace of God. But see, the disciples, they lived in a culture where they knew the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus taught them the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, the Old Testament scriptures that we have today, same Bible that Jesus read 2,000 years ago. I mean, they were talking about it then. They were studying Genesis just like we are studying Genesis. And those scriptures were stored in their hearts like dried wood, just like dried wood. And here, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who lights a match and lights all that dried wood on fire, and their hearts burned. They said, we see, we get it. It burned hot. Verse 46, he also said to them, this is what is written. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, when you've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, do you get this from that? That the Messiah must suffer, rise from the dead, rise from the dead on the third day, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. 
He says, you should have. You should have. Jesus says, the plan has been in the scriptures the entire time. My life is in the scriptures. My death, my resurrection, the, the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth is found in the Old Testament scriptures. But you guys missed it. Everyone missed it. And they missed it because they wanted the scriptures, but they did not want the one to whom the scriptures pointed. They didn't want Christ. They, they wanted to know some truth, but they did not want Christ. They rejected the one that God had sent to them. See, all of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, are about Jesus Christ. Everything is about Jesus Christ. The, the Bible has been written for us, but praise God, it's not about us. The scriptures are not written to describe us, and that's it. We're not, the, we're not the main focus of the scriptures. It is God and his glory that are the main focus, the point of the scriptures. So do you want to see the glory of God with your own eyes? Then we must behold the glory of Christ in the word. We must behold the glory of Christ in his word. And this is what Jesus does for his disciples. The veil is lifted. The lights are turned on. And they see Christ in all the scriptures. In a single moment, everything changes. A while ago, I watched an episode of a show called Switzerland's Got Talent. Have you ever heard of this before? <laughs> um, after watching one episode, my conclusion is that they don't have enough talent. <laughs> but there was one good part. There was one good part. And I saw this and I said, this is exact. Like I'm watching this. I'm like, this is Luke 24. This is what happens in Luke 24. So I'm going to show you. It's a two-minute clip, so you're going to have to hang in there. You're going to want to drift away. Don't do it. Just pay attention to it. I, there's a good payoff here at the end. It? And this is what the Lord Jesus does for his disciples. Ready, set, go. Er drückt nicht, weil es um ihn geht. Ah ja, ich muss auch für den Mal sie drücken, oder? Now, when I saw that, I said, oh my, 
it's a, it is a wonderful picture for us because those judges, they're like the Jewish leaders. And the whole time they're watching Jesus and they're like, we know what this is. We already know what this is. We don't want it. Not the Messiah. Not the Messiah. Not the Messiah. Even the disciples, they're watching this and they say, not the Messiah. This is the wrong picture. And they think it's about them. They think it's about them. But see, what happens in the resurrection is that the Lord Jesus turns that picture right side up. And they say, it all points to me. It's all been pointing to me. And in this moment with the disciples, this very moment, they saw how the prophets in the Old Testament and the ceremonies and the prophecies and the rituals and the sacrifices and all the stories in the Old Testament point to Jesus. They're all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, it's all about him. And so the resurrection gave meaning to the cross. So since Jesus rose from the dead, they say, okay, that means that the cross is not the defeat. It's not the defeat of Jesus. They were convinced that Jesus being crucified meant that Jesus failed. He wasn't the Messiah, but they said, wait a second, if he's alive, that means that the cross is his victory. That's where he purchased for humanity the forgiveness of sins. This is where he conquered death and sin for us. This is where the head of the serpent was crushed at the cross. And so the resurrection gave meaning to the cross, and the resurrection gave meaning to the scriptures, because they were convinced Jesus was the Messiah. When Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on that donkey, and tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are hailing him, the Christ, Hosanna in the highest. They said, this is our Messiah. This is who it is. And then he made a whip, went into the temple, the temple, cleansed the temple, taught the word of God. They said, this is the one. And look, the scriptures are lining up. But when Jesus died, they said, we can't even understand the scriptures. What's going on? But when Jesus rose from the dead and he turns on the lights in their soul, they saw that the entire time the scriptures have been pointing to a Messiah who would live, die on the cross, and rise again. And they said, it all, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. One commentator said, he, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was, who was offered as a sacrifice but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in all his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and Bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide Joshua to lead us to the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his, king, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw, which would not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in, an, in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Everything points to Christ. The Old Testament, that book, points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived for us, who died on the cross as our substitute and rose again. It all points to him. There are good, objective, historical reasons to believe in the resurrection. You stand on firm ground based on the objective evidence in history to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, the reason I believe in the resurrection is because I have met the resurrected Christ in the scriptures. I have met the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, and I can't shake it. And so many of you, you know what I'm talking about. You can't shake it. He's changed your life. And over the years, I've watched the Lord Jesus make me a different person. And I've had a front row seat to watch hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of people be transformed by the good news of the gospel. C.S. Lewis famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because, but because by it I see everything else. See, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who makes sense out of life. Try to figure out who you are apart from the God of the Bible. Try to figure out what life is about. Try to figure out a moral standard. Try to live with any hope apart from Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who gives meaning to all of life and eternity. It is through him that we see what life is all about. And so why believe in the resurrection? Believe in the resurrection because of the witnesses. Believe in the resurrection because of the word of God. You know, the longer I have studied the word of God, the more convinced I am that it really is the word of God. You know, the Old Testament was written thousands of years ago. And it was written over a long period of time, thousands of years. And it was written by different authors in different parts of the world in different languages. But it's one story pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why believe? Because of the witnesses. Why believe? Because of the word. Why believe? Look at people's lives. Not just in our current generation, but throughout history. Look at how people's lives have been transformed by the gospel of grace. Now, what do we do with this information this morning? What do we do with it? Well, I want to give you two points of application. Number one, commit yourself to Christ. Commit yourself to Christ. Some of you are here this morning, and the nagging question in your mind is, how do I know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead? How do I know with 100% certainty Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And then you tell yourself, if I knew with 100% certainty that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then I would get off the fence. Then I would stop having one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. Then I would commit my life to him. But see, that day of absolute certainty, 100% certainty, before you commit yourself to Christ, probably won't come. It probably won't come. Remember, the, the resurrected Jesus was standing in front of the, in front of the disciples, and doubts were rising up in their hearts. When Jesus gave the great commission, he met them on the mountain. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The great commission, it's incredible. But what, what comes right before that is that when they saw him, some worshiped and some doubted. Some worshiped and some doubted after they had spent days with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm not convinced that people get to a place of 100% certainty before they commit. I don't know, even know if that happens. 
And when you make big decisions, rarely are you 100% sure you're making the right decision. Like if you're wrestling with what, what house to buy, which house to buy, how do you know? You have five options. How do you know? Or a thousand options. How do you know you've purchased the right house? Or if you're wrestling with what career to pursue, you have all these options in front of you. How do you know that you, you will pick the right career? Or if you're wrestling with who to marry, should I marry this person or not? Or if you're wondering whether or not to get a cat, that's an easy one. We all know. I don't even need to say it. We know the answer in our souls. See, in these situations, when you make big decisions, you don't know until after you commit. You don't. And once you commit, you find out if you made the right decision. And so don't, don't tell yourself, yeah, yeah, I just, all I need is to be, all I need is 100% proof, then I'll commit myself to Christ. That day will never come. That day will never come. You must commit. Then you will find out if you made the right decision. You know, when I got uh, married, I was pretty sure that I was marrying the right woman. But after 15 years of marriage, I'm sure I married the right woman. If I had 100 lives, I would marry her every time. But you don't know that on the front end. You don't, you don't know. Maybe she's a basket case. She's going to be a I don't know. You don't know. You know. When do you find out? Do you find out 100% with 100% certainty on the front end? No, you don't find out. And if you're wondering, does it make sense to follow Christ? Does it really make sense? Talk to people who have been following Christ for 30 years, for 40 years, for 50 years. People who have, who have, who have put all their chips in on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've talked to many of those people. Some of you are those people. You've been walking with Christ for 30 years or 40 years, 50 years. And every time I talk to these people and you ask the question, do you ever regret following Christ? In all my years, no one has ever said, yes, I regret following Christ. Nobody says that. What they say is, I wish I would have trusted him more. I wish I would have obeyed him more. I wish I would have taken more risks of faith to obey and honor Jesus Christ. The more I live, the more I learn, the more convinced I am that Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive. And the longer I live, the more convinced I am it's worth it to trust him. Polycarp, an early church father, he was threatened with being burned at the stake. And he famously said, here's his response. Okay, you need to deny the Lord or you're going to be burned at the stake. Here's his answer. 86 years I've served him and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? He didn't say, oh, Lord Jesus, man, you've really messed up my life. You haven't been good to me. And now I'm facing the flame for you. Who cares? I don't know the guy. (laughs) He's not alive. That's not what happened. 86 years I've served him, and he's never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? This is the testimony of history. This is the testimony of the saints who have gone before us. So commit your life to Christ. Number two, seek Christ in the scriptures. Seek Christ in the scriptures. You know, if I wanted to make everyone feel guilty, I'm not going to do this, but if I wanted to make everyone feel guilty, I would just have you raise your hand. I would ask you questions like this. Don't do it. How many of you have read your Bible every day this week? Raise your hand. And then we'd all cheer really, yeah, yeah, woo, good job. How many of you have read the Bible one time this week? 
or more. And then we would cheer a little bit less loud, but we still cheer for you. And how many of you, you haven't read the Bible in a month? And then you'd raise your hand, we'd boo you, kick you out of here, or whatever, you know, whatever it would be. <laughs> but we would just feel guilty. And I don't want to do that. Guilt doesn't produce the transformation that God wants to do in your life. Guilt doesn't do that. But I do want you to sense the opportunity we have. I do, want, I do want you to sense the opportunity we have to seek Christ in the scriptures. We must seek Christ in the scriptures. And you might be thinking, I don't even know what that means, to seek Christ in the scriptures. Well, whether you've never read the Bible, or you've been reading the Bible for decades, I'm going to give you four little tips to try to help you start today. Not tomorrow, today. Start today. Four tips to seek Christ in the scriptures. Number one, meet with Jesus. What is, what is the purpose of opening up your Bible? It is to meet with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, I was thinking about this truth or this, this uh, observation this week, that to read the Bible without the expectation of meeting Christ and hearing from Christ is to read the Bible in unbelief. And I think what can happen over time is it becomes so dry, and we open up the Bible and we read a little bit, but we have no expectation of hearing from Christ and I think we don't want to approach the scriptures in unbelief. You're not going to get out. You're not going to get much out of it. So what is the right attitude to meet with Christ? One scholar said the scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Whoever turns aside from this object, even though he wears himself out all his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of the truth. See, remember the Pharisees, they poured over the scriptures but they were unwilling to come to Christ. He, they poured over the scriptures because they thought in the scriptures there was life. But Jesus says, no, the scriptures point to me. But you are not willing to come to me. So meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, develop the discipline of studying the Bible. Develop the discipline of studying the Bible. Studying the Bible should be a delight for us, but it's not always a delight. God intends for the studying of his word to be a delight, not always a delight, sometimes an obligation. And so we, when we feel like reading the Bible, we read the Bible. If we don't feel like reading the Bible, we don't read the Bible. You will never become the type of man or woman God wants you to become if that is your attitude. You'll never get there. We must develop the discipline of reading the scriptures. And the goal of the discipline, of developing the discipline of reading the scriptures, is to turn the duty of reading the scriptures into our delight. To turn the, the obligation of reading the scriptures, making the scriptures the honey for our soul, sweet to our soul. So how do you do that? How do you start that discipline? You gotta answer three questions. When are you gonna read the Bible? Pick a time. Secondly, where are you gonna read the Bible? Pick a place. And number three, how are you gonna read the Bible? Pick a path. Get on a plan. What's your plan? Do you have a plan? People say, you know, I read like Jeremiah 31 a month ago. I don't know. I didn't know what I was talking about. What do I read today? Pick a plan. There are so many plans that will walk you through the word of God. If you don't know where to start, let's make it easy. The Gospel of John. Start reading the Gospel of John today. Number three, slow down and be patient. Slow down and be patient. Uh, an image in my mind of how many people try to learn the Bible, it would be like trying to learn It'd be like trying to learn the piano. And what you do is you say, okay, here's my strategy. Uh, once a month, I'm going to sit down on the piano for five minutes. I'm just going to 
hit some keys on the piano. Then next month, I'm just going to hit some keys on the piano. Then the next month, hit some keys. And after a year of doing that, you say, I don't know how to play the piano. And I think we don't want to approach the scriptures that way. Just every once in a while, we just open it up, read for a minute, then just read for a minute, read for a minute. We don't want to do that. What we want to do, what we want to do is recognize that there is one book between now and the day you die, you are to master there's one book to give yourself to. Read tons of books. Read tons of books. It's great to read. There's one book to give your heart to, to give your life to. And you say, over the next 10 years, I'm gonna learn the scriptures bit by bit, 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, and let the cumulative knowledge, the cumulative impact of the scriptures transform your heart. And I guarantee you, you give yourself 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day for 10 years, you will become a wizard in the scriptures. We will even give you a wizard, wizard's hat, probably a Walnut Creek wizard's hat, maybe. I don't know. You will become a wizard, but slow down. And then number four, obey Jesus from the heart. The seminal issue in scripture learning is always the heart. It's always the heart. And if you are unwilling to obey what you know, why do you think God will, will reveal more to you? God will reveal more as we trust him and obey him. Jesus says in John 7, 16, Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but it is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. If you're willing to do his will, you will discover this is God's word. But we must on the front end say, Lord, whatever you show me, I'm gonna do. Whatever you show me, I'm going to do. And so, brothers and sisters, let's meet with Jesus. Let's develop the discipline of studying the Bible. Let's slow down and be patient, and let's obey Jesus from the heart. And I just want to encourage you, start today. Don't wait. Start today. Let's pray. Father, thank you.